Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Welcome to the February 13th episode of Carbon Removal Newsroom. Today, we dive into the murky waters of what seems like a clear climate solution, large-scale carbon removal. We'll be unpacking research that sheds light on the potential pitfalls of this technology and asking the crucial question, is large-scale carbon removal sustainable? Amid the promise of sucking carbon out of the air lies a complex web of potential consequences for our planet and its inhabitants. So today, joining me, Radhika Mulgafkar, VP of Supply and Methodology at Nori, is our usual policy panel, Holly Jean Buck, Assistant Professor of Environment and Sustainability at the University at Buffalo. Hello, Holly. Hi. And Will Burns, Co-Executive Director of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University. Hello, Will. Hey, how are you? I am well. I hope all is well in Chicago. Indeed. All right, so let's just jump into it. In the last month, two papers have been published raising concerns about large-scale CDR. I don't think they raise new issues, but it's always good to kind of revisit what people are thinking about. So let's start with you, Will. We throw around the term large-scale or gigaton-scale carbon removal a lot. But can you give our listeners maybe a sense of just how massive that is? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of ways of looking at it. One, one is in terms of actual mass, uh, a, a gigaton is, is a pretty astounding thing. So if you thought about a gigaton from a standpoint of mass, it's equivalent to the mass of all land mammals other than humans in the world. One gigaton is. It's also roughly twice the mass of all human beings in the world. And if you think about the amount of emissions that we look at right now, we're talking about at the end of 2023, about 40.9 gigatons. And uh, the estimates are if we're going to reach 350 parts per million, you know, the, the, the kind of the talisman for a lot of people of rolling us back to a quote unquote safe climate. Uh, it's been estimated that we'll have to remove about 500 gigatons from the atmosphere by the end of the century. That's a little mind-blowing, I must say. I have never heard it thought about in those terms or described in those terms. It's amazing we've released that much, actually, if you think about it. Uh, yeah. Also. yeah, yeah, well done. Holly, just a few days ago, on February 1st, the journal Science published a paper titled Sustainability Limits Needed for Carbon Dioxide Removal in which the authors assert that many governments and industries are relying on future large-scale land-based carbon dioxide removal to avoid making necessary steep greenhouse gas emission cuts today. So as a person who literally wrote a book called Ending Fossil Fuels, what do you think of this statement and do you agree with it? 
gets kind of complicated because I'm not sure that these governments or industries know that they're relying on it. So, so is it fair to say they're relying on it? I, I know that sounds weird, but I just think that the awareness that net zero involves carbon removal, even among people who work on sustainability strategies, is still pretty low. And so, yeah, implicitly, they might be relying on it, but it's not like they're going out and making plans to get it. So I think maybe there's different language we could use to describe that problem a little bit. So how do you, how would you describe it? Because I agree with you. It doesn't seem like carbon removal is so accepted that you have people who are putting off cuts today because they think they're going to buy carbon removal tomorrow. But clearly there is a large concern around the lack of action around reductions of emissions. Yeah, well, that's that's a whole other problem, though. I mean, and what these this paper argues is, you know, other papers argue that it's linked, but there's lots of other reasons that people are not reducing emissions <laughs> besides carbon removal. So I guess I would say if I was to revise the statement, governments and industries have signed on to targets that imply they would need carbon removal, but they may not be aware of that and they're certainly not planning for it. But we yeah. might have a different take. Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah. Yeah, I do have a different take. <laughs> When I look at the, I think it's that, uh, I'm trying to remember if it's that piece or it's the other piece we're discussing. I think it's the other piece we're discussing. And, you know, it talks about the fact that the, that the NDCs right now use about 12 million square kilometers of land-based CDR by, by 2060 under their assumptions. And, you know, that, that study estimates that that's about, you know, three or four times higher than what's sustainable. I think that countries are starting to play this game where they're, they're either playing the game of, of assuming massive overshoot and then magical re descent through CDR, or they're, they're taking the balancing language in Paris and extremis by, by starting to, to come up with some very high land-based CDR commitments. And, and, and that worries me a lot. So first of all, Will, can you define NDCs for our listeners? Oh, I'm sorry. No. So uh, under the Paris Agreement, the, the temperature goals are supposed to be effectuated by nationally determined contributions. And so it's a bottom-up process whereby countries pledge how much they're willing to reduce their emissions and through you know the stock take and other uh, sort of provisions, we're supposed to ensure that there's a matchup between those contributions and what's necessary to get to those temperature targets. And just to poke a little further at what you said, why do you think countries are starting to play this game? Is it because it's just they're punting and they're making a pledge that they know they're not going to keep? Is there because you think carbon removal is cheaper than emission reduction? What's driving this behavior? Yeah, it's probably all of the above. It's probably politically easier to to put in large amounts of of, of CDR and and hence not have to poke the cage of of reducing emissions in in the short term, which will be very expensive and also has some extremely 
powerful political forces on the other side. And, you know, some of these companies, as some of these countries are also large fossil fuel producers themselves, like the United States, right? So it's easier to, to rely on, on CDR. And I think some of them do believe that, that these approaches will be cheaper than structurally decarbonizing, which, you know, both of the pieces suggest to, to some degree w- would be true. So, Holly, going back to this paper that sustainability limits needed for carbon dioxide removal, it mentioned socio-ecological thresholds for CDR deployment. So can you elaborate on what these thresholds might be and how they can be used to determine a safe and sustainable level of carbon dioxide removal implementation? Well, I think there's different ways you could define this. I didn't find it super well scoped in this policy forum piece, although, I, you know, I, they point to a whole bunch of different things. So they reviewed the literature, including like meta reviews of other papers, and they talk about constraints like the impacts of large scale land use change on biodiversity, food security, and the rights of indigenous and local peoples. They also talk about what you might think of more as sustainability issues like freshwater use, you know. So there's a lot in there. (laughs) And you could imagine a different group of people defining it a little bit differently. But the main point is that there's both social and ecological risks that need to be better taken into account. I think this is something that we've talked about a lot on this show, and particularly with you, Holly. And It doesn't sound like this paper introduced anything new to your thinking, but have you seen progress in the last few months in this area, or is it just continue to be something we're talking about, even as the UN moves forward on these different contribution limits? Do you you see anything happening in the space? No, and this frustrated me a little bit because Chris Field and Katie Muck wrote a piece in Science back in 2017 called something like right-sizing carbon dioxide removal. And this is kind of like, I mean, it's basically the same sort of argument. They did a little bit more calculations on land use implications, for example. But really, I see the main point of this piece is to point to like a much larger serious research agenda that would be involve a lot more different types of models and disciplines. And what they say is that here in this piece that research on a sustainable and realistic CDR budget across all CDR methods should be prioritized. And they say it should assess ecological and biophysical risks. It should assess social feasibility. And it has like a list of things of like you would want to do if you were to actually undertake this research, I don't know, program, but it's not the program itself. It's like the argument for why we need that big investment time and energy to really answer this, these questions. Yeah. Do we have the time and do we have the energy? I'm, I'm just not sure. But it does seem like a nice bridge to a question for you, Will, which is, is this the place we need policymakers to step in? And how do we balance all these competing interests, political interests, obviously environmental interests, justice issues? Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know about the about the latter, but in terms of the former, first of all, I really agree with Holly. It's absolutely kind of a of a a broad scale sort of mapping of what what needs to be done without 
really telling us how to how to structure it. But in all fairness, I guess that's that's what they were seeking to do. But I think it's time to probably try to start putting uh, meat on the bones in terms of doing that and figuring out what legal mechanisms we have to facilitate that. Um, I think I think there's things under the under the Paris Agreement that would permit us to start to do that. I think the the fact that the the Article Six supervisory body started talking about sustainability considerations in the context of CDR not very well in my opinion, but at least started talking about metrics in that context should be a, a useful segue for the regime to start trying to to meaningfully figure out how to incorporate this into the standards for both the the nationally determined contributions and the long-term emissions standards that, that they call on the, on the parties to, to set up. And you have language in the preamble or the introductory section of Paris that says that when you, you're not only supposed to t take into account the impacts of climate change on, on, on people, including vulnerable people, but the impact of response measures. And so I think that gives you a framing to authorize the parties to start to to look at these issues. And I thought one thing that the science piece did a good job on was it had some broad recommendations of what should be done, right? They said, not only should you have separate emissions reduction and CDR targets, but you should seek to maximize emissions cuts and strive to limit land-based CDR footprints. And, you know, Holly's excellent piece that talked about how we define residual emissions, right, uh, is I think a good starting point for that, right? And and I, I don't think it's something that we've been doing in, in earnest at this point. And it, I think that piece and the other piece both suggest that countries may be playing games a bit on on defining residual emissions in a way that's that's so capacious that it allows them to avoid meaningfully decarbonize the economy. And so the parties to Paris probably should start working on some metrics that circumscribe that as much as possible. So Holly, I'm going to ask this question to you, though maybe Will will want to jump into. We, we're aware that a lot of the nature-based solutions, and not many of these solutions, right, require either land use changes or an abundance of land. So how do you think about engaging what is needed, which are these solutions, in a way that doesn't exasperate other potential biodiversity loss, threaten food security? Because sometimes I wonder if some of these things are not even for nefarious reasons, but for protective reasons, people are acting this way, right? Because they don't, they don't know what this means or, at the worst, a violation of human rights. How do you structure, Holly, something that will be meaningful and will be resonant with policymakers? I think it's a big question because it's very context-dependent. And so you could imagine different recommendations in different geographic areas. I know that seems like a, a cop-out answer in, in some ways, but there's just been so much writing on this because we had, you know, after the food price spikes circa... 2008, again, 2010, 2011, there were these large-scale land acquisitions, many of them just paper deals that never went anywhere, but like for large areas of agricultural land in, in the global south with speculative food production, but there are also biofuel deals. You know, there's also been these carbon credit deals. I mean, 
So a lot of people in response to that kind of dynamic have observed it and made plenty of recommendations about what you should do. And I think we're still trying to link that experience when we think about future carbon removal. And I don't, I think that link has been drawn somewhat, but it could be drawn out even further. All right. We'll turn to the other paper right now, which, Will, you already sort of alluded to, which is from Environmental Science and Technology and is titled Prioritizing Non-Carbon Dioxide Removal Mitigation Strategies Could Reduce the Negative Impacts Associated with Large-Scale Reliance on Negative Emissions. Quite the catchy title. Um, it's what the academics like- are known for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Drew me in. It sounds like they're taking a different approach, which is sort of prioritizing emission reductions over large-scale CDR. Can you summarize the argument for this approach and maybe how it's a little different than what the other paper was trying to, uh, you know, state? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think they were they were good bookends because one of the things that this piece does is it emphasizes, you know, it emphasizes once again, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And whereas the the science piece really focused on the the sustainability limitations associated with with nature-based solutions, this one said, you know, novel CDR also has has some serious sustainability considerations, right? Direct air capture with large amounts of energy requirements, large amount of energy requirements for for enhanced rock weathering and, and so forth. And so they developed these scenarios for low use of, of CDR defined as like a gigaton annually, a medium scenario of eight gigatons, and then a high scenario of, of 22, right? And, and then mapped out what what that would would look like right and ultimately concluded that when you get to those to those high scenarios right it requires massive amounts of 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 energy massive amounts of of cropland for example that would be diverted though even at a gig they conclude that you're going to reduce food and odd food cropland by about 20 percent right but it's 50 percent when you get to the 22 gigaton pathway. And they suggest that if we do that, if we get to these high scenarios, we're we're going to not only have sustainability considerations, but we're going to lose a lot of the co-benefits of, 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 of phasing out fossil fuels quickly in terms of air pollutants, right? And they talk about lung cancer and stroke and, and things like that. One, one other thing that I thought was was interesting in it is they talked about to some degree, though it's interesting why they didn't cl- conclude that this might be e- equally interesting, that the trade-off is, is that we could have very higher costs associated with getting to our temperature goals if we have to spend uh, huge amounts of money for, for renewables and, and, other, and other options, right? And one of the things that I thought was, was a striking number in there was when they talked about the fact that they said that if you go with the low CDR uptake scenario, one gig marginal costs are going to reach about $2,700 per ton of, of CO2 to get to 1.5. And in the high uh, CDR scenario, the marginal cost for reducing emissions is about $300 per ton, right? So it's, it's going to cost society a lot more 
The question is, is will it, will it disproportionately impact certain groups and then tip the balance toward arguing for more CDR, right? I think as Holly suggested, there's just a, a huge number of, of factors and equities to, to weigh and it's, and it's difficult uh, to, to sort it all out, right? And, and determine what's optimal, I think at least. Yeah. So as Will was saying, Holly, right, this study suggests limiting global CDR deployment to about one gigaton by 2050. Is that really feasible when you think about the scale of both the emissions challenge and the just the amount of carbon dioxide currently already in the atmosphere? And do you see any alignment with current policy proposals? I mean, on the second part, no. And on the first part, I know I think it's probably more feasible than 8 or 22 gigatons, which is what they compared in the study. So, you know, I don't know if they were necessarily suggesting limiting global deployment to one gigaton. It was more like, let's put that constraint in the model and see what the model turns out. And so they didn't really necessarily look at all the trade-offs comparing these things, though, because there's a lot of nuclear and hydrogen in what came out of their model. So in terms of feasibility, it's like, will people want to pay for and build more nuclear? If we're building out hydrogen to a greater degree, is that hydrogen going to leak and cause some methane and other problems? We kind of don't know. Are people down with all of the extra critical minerals to build the renewable to the degree in that scenario? I don't know. So you'd have to really do this in a in a much more structured way, way where you look at a lot of different things. And I don't know how people are going to read the trade-offs of one option or another in terms of more or less feasible at the end of the day. Oh, so depressing, Holly. Anyway, both papers highlight the risks of over-reliance on CDR. And so I was wondering if either of you could give me concrete examples of negative impacts that we might see if we go down that path. It all feels very theoretical to me, but I always feel like it's like this or this, but not as to Holly's point, there are all these other considerations that you have to put in there. You know, it always seems like there's two states they're considering, not the infinite that we live in. So any concrete examples? I mean, in terms of negative impacts, if we over-rely, I think there's a category of negative impacts if we actually went forward and built the 22 gigatons that would involve land displacement and extreme costs and those sorts of um, things. But also there's the risk of over-relying and then not building it, which people talk a lot about mitigation deterrence, but I think a, you have adaptation deterrence where people were saying, we're going to get to 1.5 by building this CDR. And then they haven't adapted for two and a half for wherever we're really headed. I also think that people get to a sense of frustration when they see that we're not going to get to this 10 gigatons. And then they're like, oh, well, let's go for solar geoengineering because it won't necessarily be like, oh, we can't do 10 gigatons, let's double down on energy storage or whatever. That might not be where this conversation goes. So that's another risk I see with over-relying on CDR. I guess one more I'd add is, is again, I'm, I'm not sure which paper will discuss this, but one of them had a lot of discussion about over-reliance 
to uh, allow large overshoot, right, of, of temperature targets and then, you know, magically drawing back down, right? And that's one of the things that keeps me up at night because I think that once you overshoot the temperature targets, first of all, it's, it's going to take a while to get back down with, uh, with, with CDR, right? And second of all, you could have all kinds of, of irreversible impacts in terms of biodiversity loss. And also when you start overshooting at, at to 2.5 or three or above, you start to get a lot of nonlinear sort of responses in the system that may be irreversible. And so I think we play a dangerous game with with allowing overshoot by building in large amounts of of CDR in our assumptions. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like this is just like a human nature issue, not a CDR issue, right? We're like internal optimists that technology is going to fix all of our problems rather than yeah, right, right, and it, right, yeah, right. We got ourselves in this trouble with with technological optimism, but now this new technology is what will save us for sure. Yeah. Instead of focusing on the like concrete actions you can take today, there's always something down the road that'll save us. So next question for you, Will, is the IPCC report clearly acknowledges the need for both emission reductions and CDR. We've talked about that a lot on the show. So how do we kind of disengage the humans, you know, natural techno optimism and actually produce strategies that are balanced and complementary and, you know, do what we need? Yeah. I don't know. It's a difficult question. But again, I think that there probably has to be an acknowledgement that 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 decarbonizing structurally uh, has to be job one uh, and and should be the focus. And we should start to try with realistic sort of metrics to define uh, how much we can uh, realistically reduce emissions in, in every sector uh, and define residual emissions and then carve out a role for for CDR that is almost singularly focused in that context, maybe with some room also for developing countries to continue to emit at a higher level for a while to to balance the equities. But that's going to require a, a, a huge amount of research, and it's going to have to require actual commitments. I mean, you know, I hate to bang the same drum, but I think if we continue to rely on this wild west of voluntary carbon markets to to create a benign and virtuous pathway to the future, it's it's a fool's errand, right? We're going to need a regulatory approach that tries to mandate these kind of measures and then allocates emissions and carbon removal reductions accordingly. And we better start sooner rather than than later, or we're going to be locked in to these assumptions. Well, a regulatory approach. I mean, we can't even decide whether someone can be on our ballot in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I know, a boy can dream. <laughs> so, Holly, a uh, question about these papers. You know, both obviously mention economic, technological, and social challenges associated with large-scale CDR. Can you just talk about any potential solutions? Like if you were queen of the world, what would you do to address some of these issues? I mean, I could write a book about that. <laughs> no, I, I just like, okay, so in these papers, I wouldn't necessarily ask the modelers about the social challenges. I will point out like one data point about the economic challenges, which I think these models focus on, which is this 
environmental science and technology paper said that, okay, if you did one gigaton by 2050, novel CDR, the optimal marginal cost required globally to reach the modeled 1.5 pathway increases to over $2,700 a ton of CO2 compared to about $300 a ton when novel CDR scales to 22 gigatons by 2050. So I know that was a lot of like numbers to, to, to parse if you're listening and not seeing it on the page. But the takeaway there is that you can see why these models throw in a bunch of CDR, right? And so, you know, I'm not the best person to comment on how we overcome the economic challenges of CDR or of mitigation. But the one thing that's clear to me is that we need to build understanding among voters about these challenges so that they will vote and support policies. And we especially need policy proposals that are going to distribute those costs equitably and not have them fall among the people who can least afford it. So that's, <laughs> that's number one for me right now. You're both such optimists. So, Will, last question for you today. Do you think there is a future for large-scale CDR in a sustainable climate solution? And under what conditions would it be most effective? Yeah. Well, you know, again, an extremely tough question. I I think when it comes to the to the the land based approaches, the the ones that were looked at in in here, backs and and afforestation and reforestation, right? There seem to be some clear biological limits, and whatever innovations uh, we might develop in these sectors in the future probably aren't going to do a whole lot to change those, right? And so there's certain things we can do as the one of the pieces suggested more of a focus on restoration, for example, uh, than afforestation will make some sense. Emphasis on using, you know, crop residues and things like that instead of relying on on trees and dedicated energy crops. But on the technology side, there I think there's some possibilities. But again, it's it's a big caveat, right? I think direct air capture could have a huge potential role to play. But its primary constraint remains uh, the energy question, right? If, uh, if, if we're going to use a quarter of our renewables to drive direct air, air capture, you know, in the latter part of the century, that's, is that going to be the optimal use of the renewables that we have, assuming that there's a limit to the renewables that we can produce, right? If we can get past that issue, I think that's a system that could potentially scales without huge land use requirements, water requirements, things of that nature, and, and make some sense. I think some of the other approaches even uh, help us address some of the sustainability challenges, potentially, such as biochar and enhanced rock weathering, if it really does contribute to, to soil health and increasing crop yields, right? So I think there are scenarios under which this can happen, but it's early days. And that's part of the frustration. How much capital do we expend to determine if we can reach that? How much do we rely on these approaches and our assumptions of where we're going if that diverts us from doing other things that, that may be a, a, a sure bet in terms of reducing emissions? Yeah. 
I have two thoughts about what you just said. One is, I mean, I know I was just making fun of techno optimists, but there are some interesting new technologies that don't use so much energy, photosynthetic or sunlight driven. I just had Banyu on the podcast last week. And so maybe there are pathways to less energy, but of course we shouldn't rely on it. And the other comment I would just add is we're mismatched in time, right? We've done a lot of damage for a long time, but maybe the technologies are so new, we don't know the trade-offs that we're making. It's it is what it is interesting yeah Yeah. i tell my students you know if we were if we were trying to start getting our act together and it was 1980 or 1970 right we'd have the luxury of really looking at these in a granular fashion in terms of assessment but we we waited so long we're hitting critical thresholds and we feel like we need to move quickly uh, in conditions of very high uncertainty right my parents generation shouldn't have put this generation in those crosshairs, but we did. Yeah. My kids thank us. Yeah. (laughs) So Holly, last question for you today. What message would you give to policymakers, individuals regarding the role of large-scale CDR in addressing climate change? Well, first, I don't think people should be taking this 10 gigatons figure that's circulating as like the given need. I think that people are a little bit quick to assume that these models are working in the ways we want them to. I mean, they may not have the latest assumptions about how to, you know, mitigate emissions from industry. That's something that improves quickly. So what what would I tell them to do? I would say one thing we should be doing is investing more in R&D in things like mitigating nitrous oxide emissions, like look at those things that are really comprising the leftover residual emissions and put more R&D now into things that are going to be able to eliminate that much more in 2050. And then, you know, you won't need 10 gigatons, you'll need less. And there's a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon. Like, I don't feel depressed about this. I think that, you know, aim for one or two or three, and that would probably be more realistic and fruitful than 10, 10, 10 all the time. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Holly, as always. Both of you brought great perspectives today. I really appreciate it. So thank you both for joining me and have a wonderful rest of February, a happy Valentine's Day and midwinter break if you have either or celebrate either of those. And to our listeners, thanks for listening as always. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal. <laughs>